Today's episode is brought to you by Curve, a card and digital wallet service. You'll be hearing more about Curve later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Wow, we have an action-packed episode for everyone today. We are joined back again by Joseph Wang, Fed guy, uh, Chief Investment Officer of Monetary Macro. And then uh, we have Dominique dwarf co Senior Strategist at MacroHive. Both of you used to work at the Fed, and I am so glad that you are here together. I think the fireworks are going to go off. Uh, great to have you both here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Jack. And for you guys who don't know, Dominique and I used to work at the Fed's trading desk, and Dominique was one of the smartest people there. So it's a real pleasure to see her again here. And as we'll get into shortly, she has a very, very extensive background. She's worked with some of the largest investment funds and banks for many decades, has a PhD in economist. So you really want to hear what she has to say. Yeah, that's that- very fun. Um, Absolutely. How about we start off by just sharing uh, your takeaways from the Fed's meeting on on Wednesday. Uh, Joseph, let's start with you and then Dominique. Well, I think the market's reaction when I look at it, you know, the day of the FOMC, you had see the dollar selling off, risk assets soaring higher, yields lower across the spectrum. The market took away a very dovish interpretation of the the FOMC. And and I think they're right. Uh, They're right is that even though we hiked 25 basis points with the FOMC statement suggesting that there will be more hikes, maybe more than one 25 basis point hike in the future. Um, Chair Powell had the opportunity presented many times to push against the um, implied easing in the in the um, market. So for those of you who don't follow this as closely, the market is pricing in that the Fed cuts about 50 basis points later in the year. So there's a lot of easing that's priced in the market. And in the past, Chair Powell would be pushing against this to try to uh, tighten financial conditions, basically talk the market down. And he didn't do that at all. In fact, um, you know, he suggested that the market was thinking inflation would come down lower. And he was open to saying that, you know, if, uh, if inflation actually does come down lower, that he seemed to be open to adjusting his path of policy. So as of December, the projected path of policy from the FOMC was about uh, hiking about 5% and keeping it throughout the year. So very different than what the market is projecting. And But Chair Powell seemed to signal openness to to, uh, to what the market is suggesting. And the market just kind of took that and, and ran with it. It seems like Chair Powell blessed the easing in financial conditions. And um, I think that's all that all changed maybe today, but I guess we'll get into that later. Thanks, Joseph. Dominique? Uh, so I completely agree with Joseph, and I think it reflects uh, the fact that uh, Chair Powell's hands are tied. Yes, he's the chair, the boss, so to speak, but he has to take into account the views of the doves and of the hawks, and the administration has packed the FOMC with, with doves, so they cannot be ignored. And against that, what you have is a very ambiguous uh, macro backdrop because on the one hand, you have strong growth, very low unemployment, unemployment. we saw the NFP this morning, and uh, slowing inflation. So there's something for the hawk and something for the doves. And we need the macro backdrop to change and support either doves uh, with continued low inflation, or hoax uh, with uh, 
continued low unemployment uh, before the Fed can take a less ambiguous uh, stance. Thanks, Dominique. The, the market, as Joseph said, is uh, betting that interest rates don't even make it to 5% uh, in terms of the effective fund rate uh, and that they will cut from there. Uh, two cuts in 2023 uh, and then as, as many as seven or eight in 2024. Do you think the market is right, Dominique, and why? Well, the things, I think the market is deeply wrong and this is going to be a very painful year for those people who are betting on cuts, what's going on at the moment. Um, is that basically we don't understand inflation. We are coming out of several decades of low inflation. And so we haven't had a chance to uh, focus on the macro drivers of inflation. Or those people who are focusing on those macro drivers are being ignored. Uh, for instance, what I think is going on at the moment is that we are in a high inflation regime um, and there is very serious, credible, excellent research from the BIS showing that the dynamics of low and high inflation regimes are different. In a high inflation regime, behaviors change. Suddenly, people become aware that there is inflation and everything they do, whether it's the wages they demand or the prices they set, is based on their expectation of high inflation continuing. So in that sort of regime, what you see is a strong correlation between energy inflation and core inflation, core exclude energy and food prices. Um, and we saw very clearly that correlation in the 70s and 80s when inflation is high, then it disappeared in the 90s and up to the pandemic because inflation was low. So people were living under a, a regime of uh, so-called rational inattention. So they could ignore inflation because it was low. So whenever, whenever there were shocks, those shocks did not impact core inflation. Inflation was self-correcting. But with the pandemic, we've moved back to a regime of uh, high inflation and core and energy inflation have become correlated again. And so what is going on now is that we have falling energy prices and those are dragging down uh, core inflation. But, you know, with unemployment the lowest since World War II, guaranteed inflation is not going away. You just wait. China is reopening. This is going to push up the global demand for energy. In fact, one reason, one key reason why energy prices are falling is uh, zero COVID policy in China. And that is going to trigger a recovery in core inflation. In my view, sometimes around the middle of the year. And so how high do you think that the Federal Reserve will uh, hike interest rates? And can you talk about the, the framework of how high rates should be relative to inflation. You know, there was a time where interest rates were at zero when inflation was at six or seven percent. Uh, likewise, many times throughout U.S. history, many times throughout the global history of interest rates, interest rates are higher than inflation. What should that relationship be? And when you answer the question how high you think interest rates will go, uh, how does your framework uh, uh, tie into that? Haha, <laughs> Jack, you're trying to trap me here in the coming out with my 8% uh, inflation uh, forecast, 8% uh, Fed funds forecast. Now, 
how high Fed funds are going to be, to be honest, it's unknowable. There are too many things going on. But for sure, they will have to be a lot higher than what they are now. And let me explain why. You know, there is this thing called the Taylor Rule, which is super simple um, and a sort of a back of envelope calculation to try to tie uh, the policy rate, the Fed funds rate, to the deviation of unemployment and inflation from their long-term equilibrium. And if you estimate a Taylor rule, and I've used the most simplistic rule I could think of because I wanted to be focused on Fed policy and not on the structure of lags and God knows what other unnecessary complications. But the bottom line is I computed a super simple uh, Taylor rule based uh, on a median price PC and it showed a really good fit with actual Fed funds. Since the 1970s, each time the Fed has started to tighten has been when there was a big gap between the Taylor Rule Fed funds and the actual Fed funds. And the tightening cycles have always ended when the gap had narrowed, uh, sometimes gotten to zero. Right now, the value of my simplistic Taylor rule is 8%. Uh, so that based on past experience, this makes me think the Fed has a lot more to go. Is it going to go to 7%? Is it going to go to 8%? I don't know. But for sure, it's going to have to get a lot higher than it is now. Thanks, Dominique. So, uh, Joseph, when, when I first met you and we first did our few interviews on forward guidance, interest rates were at zero and you said they could go a lot higher. Now, 3% or 4%, it didn't really matter because the, both of those calls seem so ridiculous. It, you know, 3% may as well be 4%. Well, now we're at 4.75%. And uh, are you still a renegade? You, do you agree with Dominique that uh, interest rates are going to go up to 6 7 8%? Or I believe our, our last interview you did with George Goncalves, you expected some uh, moderation from the Federal Reserve, which so far it seems like we're getting now that you know the interest rate hikes are at, at 25 basis points. So basically, I'm asking, you know, where is the Fed guy terminal rate at, and uh, why might that? How can you explain your differential between your terminal rate and the market's terminal rate, and your terminal rate and and Dominique's terminal rate? Which is 8%. great. You know, we were trying to get Dominique on Twitter. I think I know her Twitter handle now. It's going to be Uberhawk. <laughs> so, you know, I, I actually I agree with Dominique's assessment that inflation is going to be a lot higher than it seems like people expect. Now, Dominique focuses on energy prices and the strong labor market, and those are both important points. So, I tend to look at the world through the lens of the financial system. And so one of the things that I've noticed is that there's just this tremendous credit boom happening in the banking sector. So if you so when banks make loans, you know, they, they create credit, they create money. And historically, that's been a very big driver of economic growth and inflation. Now, over the past few years, usually the banking system has been making about, let's say, four or five hundred billion dollars a year in credit growth. Last year, you know, the banking system did $1.2 trillion worth of, of credit growth. So that was a tremendous, tremendous credit boom. And, you know, it seemed to slow a little bit towards the end of the year, um, early this year, but it seems like it's picking right back up. So, you know, that, that, that to me, along with the strong employment um, numbers, suggests that the economy is doing fine. And, you know, when you, when you have so much credit creation, it's, it's unavoidable that demand will stay strong. And so I think inflation is going to stay 
uh, away from the Fed's 2% target longer than the market suggests. And so rates obviously have to follow that and, and stay higher as well. I think this is especially true now that it seems that the Fed is not pushing against the loosening of financial conditions. Now, understandably, the Fed wants to be data dependent. Uh, the problem with that is that the Fed's actions and its inactions directly impact future data. So by not pushing against all this easing that's priced in the market, the Fed makes it more likely that future data is going to surprise to the upside when it comes to, to inflation. Now, I think the right policy would be to, to keep rates uh, higher and longer, as the Fed has you know, originally planned. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how much higher. Um, I would say at least five, five and a half. Now, Dominic makes a really good point about the high inflation regime and the low inflation regime. So the BIS does great work on this, and there's actually very good presentations by the BIS on this topic on YouTube. And the, the problem is that from their research, like Dominique suggested, when you're in a high inflation world, everything changes. People become uh, no longer rationally inattentive to inflation, but also it's very difficult to move from a high inflation regime back to a low inflation regime. So from the central bank's perspective, there's very strong asymmetries here. If you let inflation get out of control, it's a lot harder to get it back under control. So they want to err to the side of being more cautious. So it stands to reason that if they were, I think, doing the right thing, they would be um, keeping the rates pretty high. Um, I, I don't know about 8%. That seems like a lot to me, but uh, that, that could happen. Um, so I, I, my expectation is we get to like, say, five, five and a half and stay that for the rest of the year, simply because the Asian inflation data and the growth data is, is going to surprise to the upside. Uh, one more point that I, that I want to make, and I think Dominic raised this earlier, and it's a super important point because ultimately the Fed is it's part of government and inherently political. And like Dominique mentioned, uh, well, the, the Biden administration has got a chance to make a big mark on the composition of the FOMC. They appointed a whole bunch of governors. Uh, they, they appointed a new vice chair. And those people, they, they lean dovish. You know, that's the perception. And I think that's probably right. We can see their mark very, clo very clearly in the new advent or the beginning of new climate-related regulations on the banking sector, which is definitely not in the Fed's mandate, uh, but you have these new, more political appointees. A corollary to that, of course, is that maybe they'll, they're less, they're less, I guess, they, are, they're, they're, they don't want to hike as much because they're worried about the concerns on employment. When you hike rates, you would slow inflation, but sometimes you would slow the economy as well and, and raise unemployment. And they might not be willing to make that trade-off. Um, that's something we definitely have to watch. It hasn't been obvious the past year because we're, when inflation is at like seven or eight percent and interest rates are at zero, you know, even the dovish, most dovish person is going to be like, "Yeah, you know, we should hike interest rates." That, that's probably inflation is probably too high. But now the trade-offs, as Dominique mentioned, it's a lot more ambiguous. And if there's a clear bias on the FOMC towards being dovish, which I'm inclined to think that there is based on the, you know, the political nature and the appointments. Um, so I, I don't know if the Fed, I can see them easily not cutting rates this year, but uh, I think the bias will be to be more dovish than, than otherwise they, they should be if they were doing, the, doing their best, I guess. First of all, about the Uber Hawk um, uh, Twitter uh, call sign, 
I am totally open to being wrong. And in fact, the way I could be uh, wrong is if there is a negative, a strong negative demand shock. Say suddenly um, household take fright, I'm not sure at what, uh, and the savings rate goes up dramatically. Or if we have uh, a big uh, contraction in fiscal policy, because right now, that's another thing complicating the work of the Fed, the deficit is increasing, which is unbelievable. We have the lowest unemployment rates in um, in 50 years, and Congress is underwriting an easing of fiscal policy uh, beyond belief. So um, totally open to being wrong, uh, could be wrong through negative demand shock. Obviously, if uh, energy prices go down a lot instead of going up, as I expect, that's another way I could be wrong. Um, but, you know, as Joseph was saying, uh, inflation, high inflation is just not sustainable for society. Um, the Fed, if there is high inflation, the Fed will have to uh, will have to tighten. And one thing I wanted to add on the issue of uh, financial conditions, um, you know, Joseph's point is uh, very well taken. Um, I think what is making the Fed work more difficult this time around is structural changes in the US economy that have made it immune to Fed tightening. So let me talk about those changes. So first of all, we have a very different credit market from that of say the UK, continental Europe. We, we have this system of long-term mortgages at fixed rates. So when the Fed uh, hikes, you know, and the 10 year goes up, mortgage rates go up, it doesn't impact the average household. Um, it impacts people who want to buy the marginal buyer. Uh, and this is by contrast with the UK, for instance, when mortgages uh, uh, rates go up in the UK, uh, interest payments uh, of the average UK household go up. In the US, they don't change. So there is that. And then there is the fact that we've had 10 years of deleveraging by the US consumer. So they have huge capacity to absorb this credit growth that uh, uh, Joseph was talking about. Because their debt level are so low. Um, and so what they are also doing is that uh, they are pulling out, pulling out their houses from the market. So the, um, the residential real estate market, which is one of the more interest rate sensitive a component uh, of aggregate demand uh, is not weakening. In fact, we are starting to see uh, some uh, recovery in residential real estate investment. So it's not weakening a lot. Why? Because household balance sheets are so strong that they are able to keep their properties on their balance sheets, renting them out, uh, instead of selling them, which is supposed to bring down prices, um, wealth, and so on and so forth. And in fact, we're starting to see a stabilization of uh, residential prices, which makes me think, you know, financial conditions are too loose. The Fed has to do more. Thank you, Dominic. Uh, I want to throw a few uh, counter arguments at you, at you both, uh, with the, the caveat that uh, you know you both know uh, uh, so much more th than me. I think there's an argument that 
credit growth uh, creates inflation. And people say, oh, that's the true definition of inflation is, is uh, when the monetary base expands uh, or the, the money supply expands, uh, even though the money supply is, is very sensitive to uh, changes in, in quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. Uh, but, but I find that as actually a pretty late cycle indicator that when people have money, they don't borrow the money, they just spend their own money. But when they're really cash strapped, that's when they, they borrow. And I, I think that the lending boom that, that you're totally correct about, Joseph, and you were early on in, in calling uh, the lending boom that, that happened in 2022, uh, people are, are borrowing because they, they might not have the, the cash. And I know the, uh, there's a lot of data on deposit, deposit amounts and how, how they have exp- expanded. But uh, to me, there's kind of a disconnect between uh, if, if everyone has you know, 100% more cash in, in their deposits than they did in 2019, how come everyone's borrowing so much money? How come so much of it is personal loans? How much is, is credit card debt as opposed to mortgages? Uh, you know, mortgage d- demand has, has fallen uh, precipitously as interest rates have, have gone up. I'd also throw at um, you know, the, the interest rate hikes, are they act, uh, at least the Federal Reserve tells us that they act, with a long and variable lag. It's supposed to take 12 to 18 months. So wouldn't we only start seeing the true effects of the tightening um, you know, in, in 2023? I'd also throw out uh, an inverted yield curve, uh, which some people pay a lot of attention to, some people uh, d- dismiss it as a harbinger of a recession, as well as just the uh, declining uh, growth in, in, in spending, uh, declining growth in production, PMIs, ISMs. It's all it's all going from 53 to 52 to 51 to 50 to 49. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, is your base case that you know the economy has quote very slow growth? Uh, subdued is the word that Fed Chair Powell used on Wednesday. Or do you think that we will have sort of another reflationary boom that the economy is going to bounce off of the the local sort of you know trough and and go to to a higher level? So uh, um, I don't know who, whoever wants to take a stab at that. I can talk about the credit part. So, you know, when I think, so you see a lot of people, so loan growth is strong and you, you wonder, so is that strong because people are, are desperate, they don't have any money, so they go and borrow it. Now, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. One is, first of all, the job market is strong, wages going higher. And secondly, if you have poor, if you are in a bad situation, you kind of can't borrow money, right? No one will lend you money. So that's really strange. And when you look at the loan growth, it's just across all segments, you know, from commercial and industrial, commercial real estate, residential real estate, personal credit, you know, it, it's all going higher. So that, that doesn't really make any sense to me. And when I look at historical data, th- these credit booms, they can last for, for some time. I mean, they can go on for years and um, they eventually follow some kind of um, financial distress, but that, that, that could be in the future. Um, yeah, and Joseph, I'll just jump in that one piece of data or a, a large piece of data that, that uh, corroborates what you're saying is the very low default rates on credit card. You know, we just had American Express, MasterCard, Visa, all their credit reports, and the, their net charge-offs are very close to zero. They are budging up, but but they are, uh, you know, below uh, below average. Um, I think there is a lot of stress in the car, the, the auto lending segment, but, but that's a whole other story. Sorry, Joseph, go ahead. Uh, no, that that. Um, so you mentioned some other questions. Maybe I'll let Dami take a stab. Sure, I'll do the uh, economics part. Um, so the declining surveys, hundred uh, percent accurate. Uh, surveys are not looking good, but at the same time, there is a there has been a, a growing disconnect uh, of sur- between surveys and hard data. 
Um, and um, in fact, within the surveys themselves, there is a disconnect between questions about how respondents are feeling and questions uh, about what is going on. And the latest example of that uh, was the Dallas Fed survey where people didn't feel great about the economy, but if you ask them, you know, whether their sales were going up, their employment was going up, it was all going up. So um, I'd say there are issues with the surveys and I would pay more attention to the hard data. On the hard data, um, for sure, manufacturing, the manufacturing side of the economy has, has been hit um, quite hard, but I think the worst is behind us because uh, you had the biggest appreciation in real appreciation of the dollar since the mid 1980s. And obviously for people who sell goods, so where you have competition uh, from imports, uh, it's not great. Um, but the dollar peak is behind us. Also, what didn't help the goods producing side of the economy uh, was a shift uh, away from goods consumption and towards services consumption, which is a correction for what happened uh, during the pandemic. We could we could not go to the restaurant, but we could buy, you know, kitchen gadgets, food have food delivered. So that's reversing. And of course, for people who produce those goods, it's not great. But again, I think the worst is behind us. Um, in terms of uh, consumption, it's actually doing quite well. There was a bit of a weakness uh, in uh, the uh, personal consumption expenditure data in December. I suspect uh, this is due to seasonality. Uh, because if you look at the fundamentals, you have super low unemployment. Um, you know, people's wealth is still higher than before the pandemic. Uh, and I think that's also something that is biasing our judgment. The, the amount of monetary and fiscal support that was delivered to the economy during the pandemic is enormous, unprecedented. I cannot find words to describe it. And so, for instance, wealth, even after the losses uh, in the stock market, in the real estate market, if you look at uh, household net wealth relative to disposable income, it's still much higher than uh, before the pandemic. So, you know, the economy has been on steroids and we are still trying to get off this high. And, and that's why things are still, uh, still so strong. But uh, I'll just add to that. Ahead, you know, no, Jack, like you mentioned, um, you know, monetary policy usually, usually asks for the lag. And so if you think about, let's say, proxy um, financial conditions as, as monetary policy, since that's how it actually impacts the real economy. So we had financial conditions tighten significantly, let's say quarter three, quarter four last year, and then subsequently loosen. So, you know, the slow patch we're seeing now just could be the reflection of that tightening and now conditions are loosening again. Now, thinking back to Dominique's comments on the housing market, you know, housing was not doing very well when we had 7% mortgage rates, but lately it seems to be stabilizing again. And, and part of that could be um, the easing of financial conditions feeding into the real economy and actually letting it to reset, reaccelerate again. And on top of everything that, that Dominique's mentioned, I'll, I'll highlight the comments made earlier, but we're still doing tremendous amounts of deficit spending. You know, the, the fiscal deficit 
is huge. And that really boosts the economy, uh, even at a time when, um, I mean, so the fiscal deficit is huge. And usually we do this when the economy is in, in a poor condition because the government wants to stimulate the economy. But the economy is doing fine and we're just pulling more gasoline on the fire. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying today's show. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Curve, a payment service that gives you power over your finances. The way it works is that Curve is an extra layer on top of your credit and debit cards that gives you additional cash back on the rewards that you're already earning. Curve Card has no foreign transaction fees and you can choose to earn your rewards in crypto. You don't have to, but you have the option. CurveCard also has a feature called Go Back in Time, where you can retroactively change the card used to buy an item after you made the purchase, up to 30 days after, actually. A key concept in finance is optionality. When you have the option to do something, but you don't have to do something, this can be very valuable in finance as well as life. And optionality is exactly what Curve gives you to do with your wallet. So check out Curve to get $20 once you've downloaded the app and made your first transaction. CurveCard is powered by Hatchbank. Terms and conditions apply. Now, let's get back to the interview. So uh, core PCE, which is a measure of inflation, excluding energy prices that the Fed focuses a lot on, uh, I think is now running at an annualized clip of about um, 4%. But it but it is declining. And you know a lot of that is shelter, which, uh, you know, is, is very lagged. So, uh, you know, don't you do you expect inflation to continue decline to decline? And I also want to to hear your thoughts on the Federal Reserve's and the market's reaction to the fall in inflation uh, since which since about October, uh, but really since about December has has fueled this rally, uh, pricing in sort of the the soft landing uh, uh, narrative. Uh, so, Dominic, let's start with you. Sure. So let's break inflation in three to follow uh, Chair Powell's uh, framework. Uh, so it's clear that, uh, you know, the decline in goods prices, in fact, uh, Chair Powell said so, I think, at the last FOMC presser, the decline in uh, good prices is not sustainable, right? We had very high uh, energy prices pulling up goods, uh, core goods, uh, and also the resolution uh, of the worst uh, supply bottleneck, but this is behind us, so those prices are going to stabilize. Uh, now, the second uh, aspect, of course, is a shelter, but I have to say, so I live in Los Angeles, second largest uh, city uh, in the country. Um, I'm looking at rent indices. I'm looking at the zero indices, which shows rents stabilizing. And that's what I'm observing. But I'm looking at other indices like uh, ap apartment uh, list, which shows a big decline in rent. Well, I want to ask those guys, where are rents declining that much? Because if it is happening in my city, Los Angeles, I'm moving, no question, tomorrow. I just think that some of those indices have not been around for a long time. Uh, and, you know, for new businesses, there is always this uh, race uh, for clicks. And so uh, bias to produce sensational information. So I could be wrong there, but I'm not seeing a big, the big decline uh, that uh, apartment list is showing. Um, so point number one. Point number two, there is a lag 
between the decline in uh, house prices and the decline in shelter costs. Uh, and actually, if you plot shelter costs against house prices and against wages, you are going to see immediately that for the past 30 years, it's wages, not house prices that have been driving uh, shelter costs. So we're seeing some uh, moderation of wages, which I think is just uh, is very misleading because what is happening is that temporary work is declining simply because firms have been able to hire all the full-time workers that they, they wanted, uh, and that's pulling down wages. But if you look at the Atlanta Fed median wage, for instance, it's still high. And in my view, we are going to be disappointed by the lack of progress on shelter costs. So that's the second category. And the third category uh, is... Uh, uh, so services excluding shelter, and there, of course, you're not seeing any moderation. And why would you, given the, that these are driven by uh, wage trends, wage trends, and the trend uh, for wages when unemployment is the lowest in 50 years? It's up, it's not down. So I'm seeing, I'm expecting a recovery uh, in inflation towards in the second half. Um, uh, and we could very well uh, end the year with a uh, you know PC uh, back to say uh, five and a half, maybe even six percent clip, depending on you know how bad uh, the recovery. I mean, how strong the recovery in energy prices uh, is. I think inflation is you know it's it's going to decline. Obviously, you can't stay at seven eight percent forever, but I I don't think it's going to decline back to, let's say, 2% where it is. I think it stays elevated, let's say, 4 or 5% going forward. And the way I think about this is, you know, inflation, you know, is when prices rise, right? And prices can stay high because people continue to have money to, to buy things, even though prices are high. So then you think that, well, where do people get money to buy things? So I think there are three ways that people get money to buy things. The first is wages, what they earn in their job. And as Dominique suggested, wages look like they're going to stay high. I think the big macro picture is that we have a, we have a working force population that's just not growing the way it used to. We have aging demographics, so people leave the workforce. That's part of the reason why we have uh, such low unemployment rate and high wages. A lot of the boomers, they retired early. And the thing is that uh, this is happening throughout the world, so there's going to be I guess, if not a decline in the working force population, which is happening in some countries, at least it's not going to grow in the same way. And so that suggests that wages are going to stay higher. People will continue to have high wages to, to buy things, even though prices go higher. Uh, the second way that people can get money to buy things is, is they borrow it. So that's credit creation. And as we've been discussing, credit creation has been strong and household balance sheets are, are very clean. So they definitely have the capacity to continue to borrow. Um, we saw interest rates go higher uh, throughout last year. And strangely, you know, if you if you look at mortgage volumes, uh, real residential real estate lending from banks, it, it hasn't really changed that much. So um, the U.S. is really interesting, as, as as Dominic noted. We have this crazy, crazy good deal when we go and we take out a mortgage. It's 30 years, fixed rate, and, and interest rate, uh, the interest expense is tax deductible, and you get a free option to refi whenever you want. So... Even though mortgage rates are like, say, 6%, it's not super clear to me 
that it's high. It's higher than it was last year, but is it high if you can, uh, if the interest is tax deductible? Is it high if you can refinance it at a lower rate if rates drop? Not super clear to me. And you don't see that too much in the data as well. And of course, the third way people can have money to spend is if their assets go higher. So let's say their holdings of Tesla stock go higher. They can you know, sell that, get some cash and buy stuff. And as we see, financial asset prices seem to be recovering. And so that continues to sustain uh, demand. So it's hard for me to think of a world where inflation you know, really does decline to 2% rapidly. That, that seems, I don't know, I, I just don't see that right now. All right. So far in this conversation, we've uh, talked a lot about your own views on where the appropriate level of interest rates will be to be restrictive, uh, sufficient enough to, to return inflation down to, to 2%. Uh, so now instead of talking about should, let's talk about would and what the Federal Reserve will actually do. Because um, you know, I and, and a lot of other people uh, were listening to Fed Chair Jay Powell last year when he said it's not only about the core PCE. We're also looking at job openings. We're actually looking at the labor market. So just because inflation is falling and it uh, does not mean that we are going to uh, you know, moderate the pace of hikes necessarily. And you know, we still have 10 million open jobs. Uh, wage growth is, is certain there. Uh, and, and in other words, financial conditions will have to keep on tightening even if inflation uh, is going down. I think we got a very different Jay Powell uh, two days ago on Wednesday, where he was given many opportunities by journalists to talk about financial conditions and explain that they uh, may be too loose in order to uh, return inflation uh, back down, as he did in November. As he, in the November FMC meeting, a, a journalist incorrectly, but I think you know brilliantly, if this was intentional, said the stock market was rallying on his news, and that you know sort of triggered Jay Powell, and he just really, really went off uh, and, and said very, some very hawkish things. Now, that journalist was the first one who asked the question on, on Wednesday. It was about financial conditions. And in my opinion, Powell totally dodged it. And that was what really triggered the, the market uh, to, to go wild and, and the, the rally to continue in, in all financial assets. Um, so, so just, you know, I know you guys know this, but just for our audience, um, you know, financial conditions is the stock market, it's the credit market, and, uh, the dollar and risk-free interest rates, and only the latter one, the, the Federal Reserve controls. So, uh, you know, with stock markets going up, crypto going up, not that that's part of the financial conditions index, uh, credit rallying, so credit spreads going down, and the dollar weakening, uh, for the financial conditions index, by, by uh, which is, is it has an objective definition, uh, whether it's the Goldman Sachs uh, Financial Condition Index, I think it's the Chicago Fed that publishes it one, have been loosening since about uh, November. They've stopped tightening. However, at, on Wednesday, Fed Chair Jay Powell said financial conditions uh, continue to tighten. So not only did he say, oh, it's not a problem that they've loosened, he denied that they're, they're, they've loosened. And uh, then I, I don't know, uh, um, you know if, if you guys saw this, but it seems like the definition of financial conditions was very reliant upon inflation. In other words, if the Goldman Sachs financial conditions uh, index has eased, but inflation has gone down, that actually could be a, quote, tightening, um, uh, according to, to Jay Powell. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Dominique? Actually, could I play devil's advocate and try to defend poor uh, Chair Powell? who, you know, I've been a civil servant myself many times, and I have great sympathy. You know, these people are trying to do the best they can. They face all kinds of uh, constraints. So let me speak for Jay Powell. First of all, 
when he said uh, financial conditions have tightened, he probably meant relative to where they were a year ago. And they have, to be fair. And then there is a more interesting uh, and tricky issue, which is how does the Fed work with the market to implement its policy? Uh, and I think uh, Chair Powell's view could have shifted a little bit relative to a year ago. I think the consensus a year ago was the Fed to, talks to the market and the market does what the Fed says and that helps the Fed. But I think obviously there is, it's not working as expected. Uh, the Fed is talking, I mean, to be fair to Chair Powell, you know, he's stuck to the uh, state, the projections, the economic projections that uh, the Fed published in December. And he basically refused to uh, speculate on, you know, uh, what the next Fed, the next projection might be. He basically uh, stuck very strictly to the script, you know, uh, this is what we are expecting and this is what we are going to do a couple more. Uh, rate, rate hikes. Um, and I think the, the disengagement with financial conditions, if you will, the refusal to address this question on the, the easing of financial conditions could be because Chair Powell realizes that it's a difficult game in the sense that he doesn't control uh, how the market is going to interpret what he says and how he's going to, how the market is going to react. And there was, um, and, uh, Chair Yellen, uh, FOMC, uh, a board governor, uh, Governor uh, Stein, who was a professor of economics, who wrote about this issue of the sort of a game of mirror between the Fed and the market. The Fed says something, the market does something else. So the Fed tries to address what the market has done and so on and so forth. And the bottom line is that the Fed does not control what the market does. Uh, and so perhaps this is how we could look at uh, Fed powers uh, clear, you know, as you guys have highlighted, he clearly refused to address the, the question of the recent easing of a financial condition. Perhaps it's just learning that things are beyond his control and he better step back, look at where the economy is going, where inflation is going, and then, you know, move his interest rate and, and not try to get the market to do his work. Anyway, my uh, David's advocate. Joseph, what do you think about that? Thank you, Dominique. And what, so some, some, one, someone mentioned, and, and then I, I immediately, someone mentioned that um, during the press conference, Paul was kind of unusual in the sense that he would emphasize, you know, my view or what I think, you know, and, and, and when I heard that, and I realized, you know, that's right, because Fed chairs usually don't want to know uh, what people don't know exactly what their own view is, they, they want to talk for the committee. Uh, for example, in the past, people would often try to figure out, you know, what which of the dots in the dot plot is the chair's dot. But Paul seemed to be more open to saying what he seemed to say personally, kind of suggesting a wedge between him and the rest of the committee. And my sense then is perhaps there's a lot of disagreement on the FOMC as to how exactly to proceed. And maybe you might have a lot of people, a lot of the new doves uh, you know, clamoring to be like, yeah, yeah, you know, monetary policy, 
accent uh, lags and so forth. So we should wait to see how things are going. And so he, he perhaps he doesn't have the political backing to too strongly push against uh, financial conditions, conditions in the same way that, that he used to. And, you know, if that's the case, we'll find out soon because, uh, you know, Fed speakers can come out and start to uh, man- massage the message again uh, in the coming days. Mm. Thank, thank you both. I, I just want to uh, be clear. Uh, do you uh, agree or do you disagree that um, sort of, yeah, P- Powell uh, has a new definition of financial conditions that the market was not considering beforehand? Because you know, did you see what Brainard, Brainard said? Uh, I mean, well, Nick Timrose wrote that, you know, in a speech earlier, I think in late January, Brainard laid out an approach that included real interest rates. Um, and according to this, this model, uh, maybe they had tightened, but I, I think there was, I'm pretty sure, uh, from December to January, financial conditions objectively have loosened, um, by, by objectively, I mean, Goldman Sachs or Chicago fed. However, I, I'm pretty sure he, Powell said this, that, uh, they had not, he did not mention that they loosened at all. Uh, so I, I'm wondering, can you just, you know, share your thoughts on that, Dominique? So uh, when I listened to the presser, I thought he meant, uh, I thought he didn't want to get dragged into discussing financial conditions, basically. And I thought he meant they have increased relative to a year ago. Um, And so he sidestepped the, the question. But I mean, I could be wrong, obviously. Yeah, I agree. I think he was just pointing, it was a reference point. So as you mentioned, Jack, Obviously, the financial conditions has loosened quite a bit the past few months. I think Chair Paul was just kind of looking at a different period, uh, comparing financial conditions today to when they were hiked rates, um, you know, began hiking rates. And, you know, that's not wrong. Let's say uh, mortgage rates once upon a time, say over a year ago, were 3%. Now they're closer to 6%. So in that sense, things have tightened. So it's, it's just a different reference point, I, I think. I want to uh, move on to more uh, plumbing issues about quantitative tightening and, and reserves. Uh, but but first, I just want to say that MacroHive, uh, where, where Dominique works, is a research partner of Forward Guidance. And uh, as we did in December when we had the, the founder of MacroHive on, Bilal, uh, we are pr- promoting an annual subscription of MacroHive Prime um, at a discounted rate. Uh, you're getting 40% off uh, using discount count, uh, code Jack, or you can use the ROL, uh, URL macrohive.com slash Jack. Uh, so folks, uh, if, if they have been impressed uh, with, with Dominique's work and, and uh, MacroHive, as uh, I'm sure they will be, uh, should definitely check that out. All right, all right now let's move on to uh, the, the plumbing issues. Uh, while, before we started recording, uh, Joseph, you and, and Dominique were talking about some certain measure of reserves. I forget exactly what it was. Uh, what what were you talking about, and why the, you both were expressing displeasure at that? Do you remember what that was? <laughs> um, uh, not displeasure, more like skepticism. Uh, I am very skeptical of this um, abundant reserve framework. Uh, so basically, post uh, GFC, banks, global central banks have decided to stick uh, with an operational uh, regime where reserves, uh, banks have more reserves than they really need. And I think people completely lack perspective on this because it's new. Before the GFC, there were only two 
central banks that had this regime and for very different reasons. The Norges Bank, so the Central Bank of Norway, and the RBNZ, the Central Bank uh, of, um, uh, of New Zealand. For the Central Bank of Norway, the reason to have this reserve where banks had a lot of uh, this regime with a lot of reserve was because the banks were making a lot of uh, big payment in oil royalties to the treasury. So banks were transferring large and, volat and volatile amounts of money to the treasury. And when in the, I mean, for those listeners who are not 100% familiar with the central bank's balance sheet. Basically, when you transfer, um, when the banks transfer money to the treasury, the quantity of uh, reserve, which is the most powerful for, uh, type of money there is, uh, shrinks. And so what was going on is that because of the, the size of the oil sector uh, in the Norwegian economy, you had this huge volatility uh, in reserves, which can be very difficult both for the central bank and the banks. So the Norges Bank went to an abundant reserve uh, framework. Uh, in New Zealand, uh, it was a different situation. You had a big fiscal consolidation to the extent that there was not enough government paper in the system for uh, the central bank to be able to collateralize its lending. So there were, if, if you will, uh, New Zealand in the 1990s was a Germany of the 2000, absurdly uh, tight fiscal policy, not enough debt, and so the not enough collateral uh, that the banks could use to borrow from, for the central bank. So that's a different reason. Uh, why the RBNZ uh, switch to an abundant reserve framework. And by the way, both central banks moved away from that framework before the GFC because of the drawback, the main drawback, which is if you do that, you kill the money market because banks have so much reserves, they don't need to trade to one another. And that creates all kinds of problems. For instance, the size of your repo market shrinks. The size of the repo market relative to the size of the government debt in the US has collapsed. So you have a host of problems uh, with this regime. Uh, starting with the first one, which is you cannot control both the quantity and the price of money. It's been tried before, it's never worked. So I've spoken long enough. It's Joseph's uh, turn to opine. <laughs> so Dominic, Dominic is writing that we have this fundamental regime change. I mean, just look at a graph of the Fed's balance sheet or the ECB's balance sheet and so forth. It's just exploded higher since the GFC. So there's been a fundamental regime shift in how monetary policy is implemented. Um, I think it's really hard to go back since it's kind of written in the regulations in a sense, because now the, the public sector, they want banks to have lots of cash on deposit at a central bank. And so it's harder for us to go back to, to that old world. One of the things that I'm really interested in as I, as I look at this is that it's the first time we've had large balance sheets, so huge amounts of liquidity, at the same time when interest rates are high and inflation is high. So if you think of this, if you think of the impact of QE as um, you know making markets go to the moon, which is I think how market most people think of it, uh, it operates through a portfolio rebalancing mechanism. So someone somewhere is, is stuck with low yielding cash 
and they want to swap in to a maybe higher return or safer asset. And so longer dated treasuries or maybe a corporate bond or maybe Apple stock. You know, if that's the logic behind this mechanism, then it seems like it would be stronger when interest rates are higher because the, the, the value of cash is lower then. So if you have cash, uh, you know, some kind of low yielding liquid asset like a bank deposit, then it seems like you want to get rid of it even faster in a higher interest rate environment. So I, I wonder if that means that, you know, the asset boom we see here is simply a, is in part a combination between these change in central bank balance sheet policy plus high inflation, high interest rates. And if that's the case, maybe when quantitative t- tightening continues to roll on, uh, we'll see more of a pronounced impact on um, asset prices. Uh, that's just a theory, Ed, but I, I guess we'll, we'll figure out later. It, it seems reasonable to me, but I think it's an interesting experiment that we'll watch unfold. Joseph, can you explain that a little bit? When interest rates are higher, quantitative easing is more powerful, quantitative tightening is more powerful, and uh, quantitative tightening is reducing the balance sheet, quantitative easing expanding yeah, yeah. the balance so, sheet. And yeah. So let's say that, um, so when the Fed does quantitative easing, so it's buying a whole bunch of treasuries. And so at the end of the day, someone in the financial system who who had a treasury now has some some cash. Now, when interest rates are low, you know, you can have $100 on deposit at a bank yielding zero, or maybe you can go and you can buy a treasury security for a couple percent. Okay, so on the margin, someone is going to go and buy some treasury security or, or buy some Apple stock because they don't want to earn zero. They want to earn something. That's the portfolio rebalancing mechanism. Um, now, though, I mean, so, you know, deposit rates. So what you can earn on deposits at a bank, maybe it's like half a percent. It's not a lot. Uh, but then interest rates in the economy are like four or five percent. So that differential is large. Does that make it does that make someone more willing to go and swap out their cash and go and buy corporate bonds or um, Apple stock and so forth. It, it, does that make the Hoi Kiwi, the, um, the large balance sheet more potent? And if that's been a big driver for asset prices, keeping credit spreads narrow, keeping um, you know asset prices, equity prices elevated, then, then maybe QT would, would also reverse that pretty rapidly. So that's just, just an idea. That That's interesting. I wonder to what degree that depends on bank deposit rates being so low and, and lagging, you know, Fed funds. If, if I was a bank, I could get 4.6% right now. I can't as a, as an individual, if I, my bank is, you know, paying much lower than that. And that, that spread, that makes what you sense. But if, if the spread is tight, which it is not, uh, I wonder that would, that would be interesting. Um, yeah. But the po- banks don't like to raise deposit rates. Uh, so it's, it's usually, it's always a lagging, it's always a lagging data series. Um, the thing is, I think most people don't really care about what they earn on their checking account. Um, I mean, I actually don't because you know, it's, who cares if you get an extra 2% or something like that. It, most people don't keep like enormous amounts of money in their checking account anyway. But if you, a lot of people keep some, it, it adds up. And, and Joseph, you, you have a piece on um, fedguide.com, come hell or, or high water, a lot about quantitative mm-hmm. tightening and the level of reserves in the banking system. So now that we're in this ample reserve regime, which uh, we, we entered in, you know, in, after 2008, uh, there's tons of b- uh, bank reserves in the system. Uh, and those are assets of co- uh, commercial bank in the same way that bank deposits are assets of, of me and you and, and, and liabilities to the Federal Reserve in the same way that their liabilities to commercial banks that deposits are. Um, uh, so, so what do you make of this you know, so-called deposit migration that the commercial banks uh, have have been talking about, and um, 
and and what's going to happen to commercial bank balance sheets when deposits are are going down is in at the same time as reserves are going down uh, too because of QT. Yeah, so I think what people have been pointing to recently is that M2 seems to be um, either declining or, or not growing anymore. That's just a function of QT. So like you mentioned, Jap, when QT happens, the banking sector, the size of the banking sector shrinks because banks have fewer reserve assets and deposit liabilities. Um, but the thing is, the question is, how much reserves do banks need? Uh, when the Fed does studies on this, they, they actually don't need all that much or certainly much less than they have now. So, so far, it doesn't have seem to have had a big impact on, on the banking sector. And of course, banks continue to create credit. So their deposits are growing, uh, just not as fast as they used to because it's being offset by QT. Uh, one of the big questions in the market was, how long can QT last? Uh, Usually people think of QT as ending when the Fed starts cutting rates because the Fed has this kind of this religious dogma where the balance sheet, whatever the balance sheet does, it has to be in line with what the policy rate does. So when the policy rate, so when the Fed is in rate cutting mode, you can do QE. And the, when the policy, when the Fed is in um, rate hiking mode, you can do QT, but you cannot, you cannot do opposite things. It'd be like pressing the gas on the car and the brakes at the same time. You can't be cutting rates and giving QT. Now that's traditional Fed dogma. Um, Governor Waller suggested that, you know, maybe he's open to uh, to um, putting uh, to doing QT even if he were to cut rates later on. So if he's willing to do that, that that seems to greatly extend the uh, the possibility of how long QT can go. And when I look at market expectations, it seems like many market participants expected QT to end and earlier than the expected three years that the Chair Powell had initially uh, suggested, but um, that that might those expectations from market participants may be incorrect. And, and just really quickly, so uh, there are two things you wrote about the Governor Waller did. The first was saying, actually, we can do quantitative tightening while we're cutting rates, which is against the dogma. And the, the second thing is that when thinking about bank liquidity levels, uh, people should include uh, uh, assets in uh, in the reverse repo as part of um, total total bank reserves, which which makes it uh, that that the level of act of true bank reserves c- can go down even more. Um, Dominique, what what are what are your thoughts on this? I know we, we've tackled a lot. Um, yeah, I think for the banks, the reserves is the best deal in town because they get what four percent. What is Iowa? Iowa? Oh, it's four something like four percent. Four six. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, risk-free and the marginal uh, cost uh, of funding is almost zero because they are still paying peanuts on a deposit. So they love it. I think this is a case of, uh, you know, supply creates its own demand. The thing to remember about uh, the reserves is that they are not flowing uh, across banks. We saw that uh, in... um, uh, September 2019 uh, and in March 2020, uh, you have a few banks, large banks, the uh, U.S. banking system is so concentrated, who control most of the reserves. And for risk uh, management uh, reason, uh, they are just not lending those very easily. So a good example of that, if you look uh, at the price uh, of lending those reserves. So the Fed fund rates, 
So the, the median Fed fund rates is smack in the middle uh, of, the, of the target range. But if you look at the 99 percentile, uh, it's 33 basis points above uh, the median. So in other words, there is a small uh, fringe of uh, banks uh, despite this enormous quantity in the system uh, that are being made to pay uh, much higher uh, rates in order to uh, to get liquidity. That is definitely not a systemic issue. I'm not saying that you know there is some instability built in the system, but what it tells you is that despite you know the Fed obsession with keeping banks balance sheets squeaky clean after the financial crisis. Uh, and despite the enormous quantity uh, of reserves we have, they are just not flowing where they are needed. So, um, so there is that, that the system is, uh, is quite dysfunctional. I mean, this comes back to what I was mentioning earlier. When you have an abundant uh, reserve, an excess reserve framework for monetary policy, you kill the money market. To me, that's a, an, an instance uh, of that. Uh, and uh, then, yeah, I'm on the view of uh, that, you know, QT, um, is going to surprise again by ending uh, early. Um, you'll have to read my uh, work on MacOive to get a sense of uh, when exactly, because I'm still, you know, I'm still crunch crunching the numbers. But the idea, for instance, that the RRP and the reserves are fungibles, uh, I think doesn't hold water. Um, so let me explain to our listeners: the reserves are on the liability side of the uh, Fed balance sheet. They are owned by the banks. The banks need them uh, because uh, they have to pay the treasury with reserves. They have to transact with all the banks with reserves. And by the way, let me make a plug for Joseph's excellent book on central banking that talks about these issues in a great detail and with, with great clarity. Uh, so you have that, and then you have another type of debt, which is called the RRP, the debt of the of the Fed, and this is basically the reverse repo. Reverse repo. The Fed taking money it's, uh, from basically money market funds because money market funds uh, do not have access to reserves to the reserve to the Fed reserve facility, um, and they get paid a tad lower uh, interest rates than the banks. So uh, why, and if you look at the, how the balance sheet has changed since, since the start of QT, you've had a decline in reserves, but the reserve repo, so the money that uh, the money market funds have deposited at the Fed, uh, that has not changed. If anything, it has gone up. Um, and uh, it's a few reasons. One of them being that because uh, banks are not, um, paying depositors more money, they are starting. They have started to put their money uh, in uh, money market fund. You see that clearly uh, in the data. Bank deposit going down a little bit, and money market fund assets going up. Uh, and so, uh, money market funds that cannot have enough uh, treasury uh, bills to invest in. Uh, basically invest in the Fed uh, reverse repo facility. So 
what would you need uh, for the reverse repo uh, money to flow back uh, to the banks? Um, so to have that fun fungibility that Governor Waller was talking about, well, you could pay, you know, you could uh, lower the interest rate you pay on the reverse repo. Uh, the problem is that uh, this interest rate is quite close to the uh, flow of the range you you have, your, your target range. So the risk is that uh, the Fed funds rate could actually uh, move uh, lower. So... This, this is probably a little complicated, but the idea here is that it's going to be very difficult for the money uh, that is currently in the RRP, uh, in the reverse repo, to flow to the reserves um, and uh, to allow the Fed to shrink its portfolio without uh, banks uh, starting to feel that uh, they don't have enough reserves. So I'll actually add to that as well. So I, I, I agree with Dominique that it'd be difficult to drain the RP. And I have written a couple pieces about this in the past. And for you guys who don't know, Dominique studied uh, monetary plumbing at the IMF and also on the trading desk of the New York Fed. So you definitely want to keep your eye out on her piece when it comes out. Yes, definitely. And uh, folks can uh, go to macrohive.com slash Jack to find that. And you know, for people listening to that, if, they, if they're a little bit confused, don't worry. I'm, I'm definitely confused a lot. And I've, I've talked about this a lot. Um, Joseph, as you said, you've written a lot of pieces about the degree to which if uh, money cannot flow out of the reverse repo facility, quantitative tightening will drain liquidity mostly from the banking system. Uh what are the knock-on effects of the, of that when that happens? And I mean, I mean, that's pretty much ha is what happened because the reserve repo facility is, um, you know, pretty pretty much the, the same. And uh, you know, I know you, you talked about a liquidity concerns, um, particularly in this, the sovereign market. Where are you now on, on on that about about liquidity as affected by the fact that quantitative tightening is is draining liquidity faster because it's not getting it out of the RRP? So I think there are two things that you mentioned, Jack. One is that. Again, quantitative tightening seems to be drawing liquidity mostly out of the banking sector. Uh, when I think of that, I think of banks lose bank deposits declining, so there's less of a portfolio rebalancing impact. So, you know, QE makes asset prices go higher, and QT, when you're drilling a lot of deposits, I think makes asset prices go lower. So I think that's a headwind to asset prices going forward. But the treasury market liquidity, so as I've written uh, since early last year, actually, that I, I viewed the treasury market as a source of fragility um, due to quantitative tightening. And, you know, last year we did see significant fragility. A lot of people uh, in the mainstream media were writing about uh, problems with liquidity in the treasury market. And we actually had one of these sovereign markets, the UK guilt market, break. Now, um, right now, it seems like the treasury markets and the sovereign markets in general have been bailed out by the perception from investors that uh, we're going to have low inflation and recession or something like that. So there, there seems to be a, a big bid for treasuries because of this perception. Now, if me and Dominique are correct in our assessment that inflation is going to stay high, growth is fine, and Fed would be more hawkish, then I think those liquidity problems will come right back and maybe quite rapidly as well. So uh, that's something that I'm on the lookout for in the coming months. And how does the level of 
what I will call them high interest rates relative to historic, you know, the past 15 years, how does the level of, of 4.75% interest rates and uh, 10 year uh, yielding much less than that? So an inverted curve, how does that change things? Because I know, I know in the, in the, you know, uh, bond market, a lot of leveraged players who use borrow money. So they borrow at, uh, you know, 0% overnight and they buy a, a 30 year bond at yielding 2%. So they get that carry. Now the carry is negative because you're borrowing at 4.75% and you're, you're yielding what the 10 year is, which is, is much less than that. Uh, how does that impact liquidity? And is this having an inverted yield curve sustainable for, for, for the bond market and just the, the markets in general? So I think mechanically, you would when you have a very inverted yield curve, the tendency is for it to uninvert. So the way I look at this is that we have in the U.S. at least a lot of people, uh, a lot of foreigners buy U.S. Treasuries and they buy it, um, and they currency hedge the, their trades. So what mechanically what that means is that they're borrowing short term and lending long term. And so when the yield curve is inverted, um, that means that well they get negative carry as you suggested. And that means treasuries are less attractive to foreign buyers and foreign buyers being a chunk of the of the US market, that suggests to me that they'll step back and, and, and by stepping back mechanically that reduces demand for US treasuries and puts upward pressure on treasury yields until to a point where the foreign investors feel comfortable coming back. So I think that's, that's one clear mechanism that could happen. Um, uh, I don't know if Dominique has any thoughts on that, but so we haven't seen this yet. And I think part of it is a perception that maybe the Fed will cut rates soon and then we'll get back into, let's say, an upward sloping curve and get back to positive carry. But, you know, if the market realizes that maybe we're not going to be going back to that world, maybe rates will stay higher for longer, then I think then I think that 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 could um, be, a, be a shock to, to Treasury longer dated yields. So my view on this is more an economist uh, view. Um, basically, I'm looking at the curve inversion. Uh, I'm looking at the gap between perception of inflation risk and reality. Uh, curve, the 210 is about 50 basis point uh, spread. Uh, to me, the reference is inversion during the all shock where it went as uh, big as a uh, 200 basis point spread between uh, two and tens. And uh, I think it's going to be, if my view on interest rate is correct, on the Fed funds rate is correct, it's going to be such a shock uh, that I could see the curve uh, inverting uh, far more than uh, it is now. But obviously, this is not a call for uh, H1. Let's see what happens to inflation uh, first. But um, if my view turns out to be correct, I wouldn't be surprised if we had a much deeper inversion. Right. And, and that would be a scenario in which the Federal Reserve would yank short-term interest rates up much more, not one in which the, the longer-term rates would fall. So it would be a, a bear flattener or a bear more inversioner. Um, so Dominic, and I want to ask you sort of about the, the path that this 7%, 8% Fed funds rate could, could take place because, you know, the Fed did uh, force 75, a lot of 75s basis points hikes, then they did a 50, then they did a 25 basis point hike. Uh, in my opinion, you know, they'll do, they'll do at least one more. Um, uh, so, but let's say they stop in uh, May. Let's say they do one in March, they, they do one in, in May. So they stop at 5.25% as the top range. So about 5.1% where the dot plot, plot is. 
what is your path for getting from that 5.25% to that 8%? Because because that's a pretty yawning gap. And I imagine, you know, if you're going to get there, you have to do some some 25 basis point hikes. Otherwise, it's going to take a few years, right? I mean, excuse me, 50 basis point hikes. So uh, my scenario is that um, inflation starts picking up mid-year. We arrive at the September meeting. Unemployment is still at a 50-year low. Uh, you know, core PC. Uh, is uh, back uh, above 5%. The Fed has, say, 50 in September, and then they publish uh, uh, SCP, so their macroeconomic projection, showing a much higher uh, Fed funds rate than terminal Fed funds rates than when we, what we have now. Um, they probably won't go for 8% right away, but I could see easily another percent uh, nothing will happen on inflation because of the lags, because of the pent-up demand, because of all the things we've been discussing in this conversation, really. And so in December, they go, say, another, uh, base, another 100 basis points in the terminal rates. And meanwhile, they go 50 or 75 uh, at the meetings. But the idea, uh, really what is key to the scenario, it's actually something that Joseph has been talking about. You know, I read it uh, on, in his uh, post. Uh, the Fed wants to see the whites of the eyes of inflation before hiking. And that is going to be very, very costly because it means once they will only start picking up the tightening uh, when inflation is already uh, out of control. So that's, you know, that's another reason uh, to believe in a much higher Fed funds rate. But as I said, you know, whether it's 7% or 8% is not knowable. But I think the worries start after the summer when inflation picks up and the labor market is still very tight. And then the Fed tries to make up for uh, being once more behind the curve uh, over the last quarter of the year. Appreciate it. Thank you, uh, Dominique. Uh, we'll, we'll have to leave it there, but I'm, I'm so glad that both of you came, uh, not only got a chance to talk with me, but got a chance to uh, reconnect with each other, share your views. And I, I know the audience will have gotten a lot about uh, this. Uh, just a reminder, people can uh, get that discounted access to uh, MacroHive Prime, an annual subscription at macrohive.com uh, uh, slash Jack. You can use the link in the description or use the discount code Jack. And of course, as always, Joseph's uh, work can be fed at, at, at fedguy.com and his uh, book, Central Bank 101. Oh, is I want to know too. I, so I, as you guys know, I know me through my book and my work, but I actually have this new product. It's an online course. It's called Markets 101, where I teach about markets from the perspective of a macro trader. Uh, when Dominique and I were on the open markets desk, we would actually often give our new trainees this curriculum into markets called cross-market monitoring. I basically adapted that and brought it to the public. So hopefully it'd be more, uh, be helpful to all you guys. Um, it's a work in progress, but we already have a number of courses online. So check it out on my website, fedguy.com. Oh, great. Yeah, I, I got to check that out. Um, Joseph, I'll, I'll give you the final word. Gosh, guys, it's going to be higher for longer. I don't know if it's Dominique's 8%. But I know, I know it's not going to be cutting 50 basis points at the end of the year. That's just crazy from my perspective. Agreed. I'm inclined to agree with you on that, Joseph. I, I, yeah, the bond market is wrong. Can we, would we agree on that? You too? Yeah. It's been wrong the whole of last year. It's still wrong. 
Very wrong. All right. Well, Dominique, Joseph, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. So know that if you're someone who wants to listen to an episode as soon as possible. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Please check out today's sponsor, Curve, at link.curve.com slash forward underscore guidance. That's link.curve.com slash forward underscore guidance. You can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again, and be well.